0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class, with me, your host, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books. Brought to you by Airwave Media. Do, 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 do. Did I need to make a weird trumpet noise with my hand? No. Did I do it anyway? Yes. Did I enjoy it? Absolutely. fucking I did. Because why shouldn't we have trumpets blaring for the 50th episode? Da-na-na-na. I don't know why I'm giving like strange ye olde theme music to this. I don't know why. It just seems appropriate. Clearly I've been up too long. I do have a favour to ask all of you, but I'm going to put it at the end of the show, because, let's face it, I'm going to talk too much here. But, this is the 50th episode, and I wanted to do something... big. And well, it is the 50th episode, I really should go bold and brash and somebody who's really well known. Like, one of the most famous people in history, for a variety of reasons, in a variety of locations. But before we get into all of that, update on me, my voice still hasn't fully healed. And my voice is still craggly and croaky and you know what I need? You remember Matthew Lillard who played Shaggy on Scooby-Doo, the movies? Well, he would like scream himself hoarse and they would make him these like special drinks to soothe his throat and like protect his larynx. I must find out that recipe because that's what I need. That's what I need. Luckily though, my voice is much better than it was. I can actually talk for lengths of time now. Before I could probably muster like 30 seconds and I was just down. I was out, there was no more coming out. It was getting pretty difficult for a couple days, but it's doing all right now. We're just gonna, we're gonna go through. That being said, it wasn't the only sort of shit to happen to me over the last couple weeks. So I took a tumble last Saturday I was walking into work one morning and I had my headphones in, glasses on, sun was glaring, didn't have my sunglasses because for some reason I don't own prescription sunglasses this year, but whatever. So I'm trotting down the street, got my headphones in, the sun is shining, I'm singing along to Stick It To The Man from the School of Rock soundtrack because it's a bop. And I'm on my merry way and there's this portable street sign that I do not fucking see. But one of the feet is like straight and the other one is like bent up. So I step over the first step but I get caught on the second one and I start flying through the air very ungracefully I may add and both of my palms head off the ground and I somehow twist my right hand because it's still holding my iPhone and I'm like not the phone! Protect the phone! And while I do that somehow... I managed to flip myself onto my back. Thus making sure my head isn't out of the ground. Hooray. But my back somehow lands on the feet um, of this portable sign. And I lie there on the ground and I'm like, well, this is embarrassing. I actually said that out loud. I did. And I look over and there's two people sitting on a fence just watching me lying there. So I get up, scrape myself off. There's like dust and dirt and both of my hands are scraped and when I had to sterilize my hands at work it was not a pleasant experience let me tell you and like my hip was a wee bit sore my knee was a wee bit sore so you know which was fine I can handle that and for most of the day I was absolutely grand but then like an hour before closing I start getting these pains so like up my forearms up my thighs and my back Like, my neck, I was just so sore. And when I got home, I was kind of really stiff and I was having trouble moving. And then during the week, um, it's kind of reduced itself to what I can only describe as a stinging pain in the back of my ribs. But everything else seems to be functioning fine, so um, I like to think I'm basically good now. But yeah... I wasn't feeling great, so between the voice and the entire fucking body being fucked about, there was no way I was going to be fit to record anything. Like, it just wasn't happening. Oh, and before I go any further, I want to dedicate this episode to Ruth and Jan from Prince Bishops, who brought to an event what I can only describe as the most perfect bingo card, and it really made my night. It's my favourite thing ever. And so this episode is dedicated to you ladies but I know what you're thinking you're thinking quit your gibber jabber in fact me in fact you I will but first we've got to get our source on and our sources are many lots so many my early life by Winston Churchill in search of Churchill by Martin Gilbert Churchill and secret service by David Stafford in command of history Churchill Fighting and Writing the Second World War by David Reynolds The Iron Curtain Churchill, America and the Origins of the Cold War by Fraser J Harbutt Churchill, The End of Glory by John Charmley Rethinking Churchill by Shashi Tharoor I feeling I've pronounced that wrong War Office Files, W0188, British National Archives Stop! I'm not referencing Codename Bananas! Just because it, it does mention Churchill, though, you are correct. You are it correct. Well, it does have the war, and you're saying some war. It does, it, it does have the war, and it does mention Churchill. You're absolutely correct. Okay, now you put down codename Bananas, okay? We're going to read that tonight after our, after our, our movie. Changing Direction. British Military Planning for Post-War Strategic Defence, to 1942-47. Echoes of Experiment in Unleashing a Demon by Robert McNeil. Churchill and the Bomb in War and Cold War by Kevin Ruin. Operation Unthinkable, Its Significance and Development of the Cold War by Sam Hines. We also have... the TheNationalArchives.gov.uk TheHistoryPress.co.uk And WinstonChurchill.org Churchill and the Tony Pandy Riots by Anthony Moore O'Brien. Churchill Troops and Strikers by Richard Langworth. Churchill's Secret War, The British Empire and the Ravaging of India During World War II by Magisri Mukherjee, I totally pronounced that wrong. Famine in the Twentieth Century, by Stephen Devereux. Taste of War, World War II and the Battle for Food, by Lizzie Collingham. Ingredients of Famine Analysis, Availability and Entitlements, by Amartya Sen. The Famine Inquiry Commission, of 1945. How British Rule Changed India's Economy, The Paradox of the Raj, by Tirthankar Roy. India at War, the subcontinent in World War II by Yasmin Khan. Gallipoli by Peter Hart. Gardens of Hell, Battles of the Gallipoli Campaign by Patrick Gariépy. Gallipoli, the end of the myth, Robin Pryor. I was told that you pronounce it Gallipoli and not Gallipoli, but in the current um, Sandman series, Charles Dance pronounced it Gallipoli. So, so why am I getting called out and not Charles Dance? Just saying... The War of the World History's Age of Hatred by Niall Ferguson. Civilization and Frightfulness. Air Control in the Middle East Between the Wars by Charles Townsend. A Conditional Norm. Chemical Warfare from Colonialism to Contemporary Civil Wars by Doreen Horschig and Gunes Morat Tescour. I'm gonna like ap- have to apologise to people for not pronouncing things even remotely properly. So on top of that, we have History. I think that's all of the sources. I have a feeling that I've missed one or two, but you'll be fine. So, are you sitting comfortably? Good. Then let's begin. Hold on to your bonnets and breeches. It's time to talk about Winston Churchill. So, Winston Leonard Spencer Churchill was born on the 30th of November, 1874, at Blenheim Palace, which was like his family's ancestral home in Oxfordshire. He was born to Lord Rudolph Churchill, a Tory MP, and and Jenny Spencer Churchill, formerly Jenny Jerome, who was an American-born British socialite. Basically, his dad was posh and his mum was rich. When Churchill is two years old, his paternal grandfather, John Spencer Churchill, he gets appointed as the Viceroy for Ireland, because at that time, Ireland was still under British rule. And his dad, Randolph, he becomes his grandfather's private secretary because nepotism, and they end up relocating to Dublin. So Winston's brother, Jack, his younger brother, he is actually born in Dublin in 1880. And that's as many Churchills we get. You get those two, and then you're done. They have an heir and a spare. Because after this, um, Jenny and Randolph, who I am desperately trying not to call Rudolph, I'm so tempted and I feel like I may have already done it. So they become estranged. And Winston and Jack, they get raised by a nanny, Elizabeth Everest. Which in fairness isn't really unusual for the era. I mean, it's Edwardian. You know, they had nannies and maids and all that jazz. You know, that was just part of the par. But Elizabeth Everest, she is quite probably the closest thing to a maternal or familial figure that Winston and Jack have. The closest thing they have to an affectionate family member is someone they paid. But again, social standing, posh people in the past, not surprising. When Churchill is seven, he gets sent to boarding school, over to St George's in Ascot, (laughs) Ascot, Well, that's what he did back then. Once the boys hit a certain age, they get shipped off to boarding school and become someone else's problem for like three quarters of the year. So he goes to the school and things do not go well. Academically, he's subpar and behavior wise, he's kind of shitty. But by the time he's 10, they send him off to another school where his academics improve just a wee bit. And then when he has to do his entrance exam into secondary school, He barely passes, like he just makes it, he skims. (laughs) Like he just about makes it into the school. Honestly, I think some golden handshakes were involved in that to just get him through, to be honest. So during his school years, it became very clear that he was not going to be some amazing academic. So his last three years of school were like an army form It's like Teenage Soldier Army Training. OMG. Teenage Soldier Army Training, Teenage Soldier Army Training, Teenage Soldier Army Training, They're coming after you now, British Empire! Um, I regret nothing, that was ridiculous and I don't even know if I'll keep that in. (laughs) So anyway, he applies for the Military Academy at Sandhurst and he fails. And so he applies a second time. And he fails again. And then he applies a third time. And this time, this time he actually makes it in. Third time lucky, third time's a charm. That's fine, that's fine. So yeah, he gets accepted as a cadet in the cavalry. And so he's at Sandhurst and he graduates in January of 1895. And then in February, his dad dies, which isn't great. On the plus side though, He gets commissioned as a second lieutenant in the 4th Queen's own Hussars Regiment of the British Army, based in Aldershot. But of course, he isn't happy kicking about Aldershot, oh no. He wants to go out into the world, he wants to see real military action. He is chomping at the bit. And so, he does what any nepotism baby would do. And uses his mum's connections to get him a posting. In his own words, he was... Scurrying about the world from one exciting scene to another. In the good old days when England had a lot of jolly little walls against barbarous peoples. Yes, that is going to be my Winston Churchill voice for the rest of it. Every time I use a quote from him, I'm going to do it in that shitty, shitty impression. You're just going to have to deal with it, my friends. Right, so. Churchill and his mate, they bugger off to Cuba in the autumn of 1895 to observe the War of Independence, although it's less observing and more joining the Spanish troops to crush freedom fighters. So yeah, he's jaunting about in the army. He's going from place to place. He goes to Bombay in Egypt in Sudan. He's kicking about all the while writing articles and sending them back. See, Churchill didn't think that his military wages were quite enough. They weren't enough to satisfy his particular needs, and so he needed to earn more money. So what he did is he had a wee side hustle as a journalist. So he would write about all the places he went to and the stuff that happened, right? Winston Churchill made his money on the side by being a war correspondent. Granted, he was less than um, factually correct because everything he wrote was twisted with his own particular upper class bias. So Churchill, he goes from Cuba to the States, because, yeah, let's face it, it's not that far a journey. So he goes over there and he's writing back to his mum. He has a great time there. And he writes back and he says to her, what an extraordinary people the Americans are. Yeah, he's liking it. He's having a good time. So after that, he heads back to Bombay. Then he's based in Bangalore. And he's based in India for like 19 months with his regiment. And while he's there, he's like, I need to learn more shit. Because he's like, I don't know enough shit. I need to know more shit. So he gets his mum to send him books. He's reading Darwin and Plato and all this stuff. And he gets his mum to send him books about politics and even copies of the annual register. And this is like the Bible of politics. Like who's who, what's happening, you know, how the tide is turning, all this shit. So he starts learning about politics, and as he does this, he declares himself a liberal in all but name. Because he, and you're never going to fucking believe this, he believed that his politics and his personal beliefs were very liberal. That's right, you heard me. Winston Churchill, the Winston Churchill, believed that he was a Liberal politician but without the label of Liberal like not aligned with the Liberal Party and here's the thing the reason he wasn't aligned and the reason he was not aligned with the Liberals was because they supported Irish Home Rule So just in case you didn't know Home Rule, or the Irish Home Rule movement was a campaign for Ireland to be self-governing for it to be its own state and not be under British rule. Like they wanted to be independent of Britain that had colonised it. It didn't want to be part of that. And Churchill was like, no, we should absolutely control you, 100%. So because Churchill is incredibly opposed to the concept of Ireland self-governing and not being under the control of the country that colonised it, He allies himself with the fucking Tories. In 1897, Churchill is on leave from India and he gives his very first public speech. And who is it for? The Conservative Party! For their Primrose League. Mm Mm-hmm. And what was in this speech? Well, I'm glad you asked because I'll tell you. He is supporting non-denominational education, which is good. Like, the church should not be ruling your education system. That's just not a good thing. And that's fine. What's not so good is the fact that he is strongly opposing women's suffrage. The entire suffrage movement and women's right to vote. Nah, not into that at all. When he gets back to India, Churchill volunteers to join General Bindon Blood's campaign against the Momand rebels in North India. And he gets accepted on the condition he is assigned as a journalist. This, of course, inspires him to write his first book, The Story of the Malaghan Field Force. And, you know, it's received pretty well. And after this, he writes his only fiction book was, and I shit you not, a romance novel, a Ruritanian romance called Savrola, which for some undeniable reason, I have an incredible urge to read, because I don't know what kind of romance novel Winston Churchill would write, but I'm incredibly intrigued to see what his concept of this is. (laughs) No. After this, Churchill manages to latch himself onto General Kitchener's campaign in Sudan. So Churchill wasn't keen on Kitchener. He found him to be unnecessarily cruel. I'm gonna give you a moment to let that sink in after this campaign in Sudan that Churchill decides he's going to leave the army. He's done now. Thanks very much. Because he wants to leave the army and get into politics. So when he sails back to Blighty, he is determined that he wants this career in politics. He wants to be a politician. So he goes to the Conservative Party and he starts speaking at meetings and he starts campaigning and promoting himself. And what do you know, Churchill is selected to be one of the Conservative Party's Two parliamentary candidates for the June 1899 by-election in Oldham. Which he loses to the Liberals. Seeing as he's got to wait at least another year for the next by-election, Churchill decides best thing to do is pop off to South Africa because there's probably another war brewing. There was. The Second Boer War. If the Second Boer War sounds familiar to you in any way, it's probably because that is the place where Britain created concentration camps. Remember that bit earlier where I said Churchill wasn't exactly factually correct? And in fairness, he doesn't really have a lot of journalistic integrity. But there you go. When he's reporting on the camps, his assessment is that the camps were responsible for a relative minimum of suffering. Minimum suffering. To put this into perspective, around 26,000 women and children died in those camps. 26,000. Anyway, back to the man himself. In October, he's traveling to this conflict zone when his train is shelled by the Boers, causing it to derail and resulting in his capture and internment in a prisoner of war camp, where he says he was actually treated pretty fairly. After two months of being in the camp, He escapes, he stows above a freight train, and then hides in a mine before eventually making it to safety. Naturally, being the man he was, he wrote about it, and it did get a good fucking chunk of publicity, because of course it does. In this whole incident, it inspires him to rejoin the army and get involved in the Boer War, and not just, you know, write about it. All the while, writing about every siege and surrender and British victory to the Morning Post. After he resigns as a lieutenant and heads back to England, he gets a flat in Mayfair, London. Some of you may know Mayfair as the most expensive property on the Monopoly board. Which is how I would know it. It's the dark blue one that everyone always really wanted because you could make so much rent from it. But anyway, that is where Churchill is, that's where he's staying, and that is where his base of operations for like the next, I think, six years or so. Because for him, this is a prime location for him to really boost his political career. And you know what? It works for him, because in 1900, he gets elected as an MP for the Conservative Party. He gains a seat in the House of Commons. Yeah, and in the very same month that he becomes a member of Parliament, he publishes his book. Ian Hamilton's March, which is all based on his time in South Africa, and everything that happened there. So when he goes on a lecture tour in November that year, from like, Britain to the US and Canada, like, this is like, the main focus. And what's really interesting about this is, the money that he was making when he landed this seat. The money, the fucking money. He was earning £10,000 for these lectures. Like, not in today's money, in then money, past money, in today's money, it was a million, a million pounds. That's fucking ridiculous. That's fucking ridiculous. Now, I understand that at the time, being a Member of Parliament, being an MP, was not a paid position. You did not receive a wage, which is one of the reasons why. So many politicians were lords and ladies and people with vast incomes. mm mm-hmm. I understand you didn't get money for this, but a million pounds? A million pounds? Like, what? What? Like, this whole thing was a sort of weird Ouroboros for him, because as he was going around, he was talking about himself. And his own exploits and everything that happened to him so he was promoting himself and earning money for it like he was earning money to be his own advertisement which is is just it's fucking funny to me cuz see at this point Churchill isn't really anything yet the only thing he is is a celebrity who's known for being a celebrity and this tour is like the ye olde equivalent of doing everything to promote yourself short of going on Love Island. Like, it's everything. So back to the actual politics shit. So in 1901, he's got his seat in the House of Commons, he's a member of the Conservative Party, but he ends up in this faction um, called the Hooligans. In fact, I was not really going to bring up, but I just really wanted to use the pun Hooligan, uh, A play on Lord Hugh Cecil, Hugh. And the word hooligan, because apparently this group's parliamentary manners were, um, eh, not great. Basically, they were backbenchers who didn't quite support, like, the leader of the party's, you know, views and plans, basically. Because Churchill, wasn't really happy with the Conservatives' plan for, like, funding with things like the army budget, he thought more money should go to the navy, and he was really against, um, economic protectionism. Basically the Tory party wanted to raise taxes and tariffs on all goods imported and exported as opposed to goods that were grown, produced, made within Britain and sold within Britain. Which is fucking hilarious when you think that today Britain is known as a nation of tea drinkers and that the most popular dish in Britain today is a tikka masala. May I don't know where you think you got those ingredients from but alright. Because Churchill is so vocal about his disagreements with the political party, it's clear that he is not going to progress. He's not going to be in the cabinet. He's nobody's right hand man. He's just there. So the Tories were good for getting him a seat in the House of Commons, but he wasn't going to go up in the world in the politics there. He's like, fuck this for a game of soldiers. So he does something very dramatic in 1904. He crosses the floor. That's right, he leaves the Conservative Party and then joins the Liberals on the other side of the House of Commons. As a member of the Liberal Party, he gets branded a radical because he's constantly attacking government policy. Publishes his father's biography. Conveniently, the very same month an election is held and he wins his seat in Manchester North. Also, in addition furthermore, another member of the Liberal Party releases a biography about Churchill in 101. So yeah, the Liberals have a majority government and Churchill requests and receives the position of the Undersecretary for the Colonial Office. Surprise, surprise, he does a lot of work in South Africa, including the Transvaal constitution. Of course, helping form a government in the State That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I'm Helena Bonham-Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Another thing he does is announce the phasing out of Chinese indentured labourers. Now, this has to be a gradual phasing out because he felt that an outright ban... So, like, banning indentured servitude and this very low-cost labour would completely destroy the area economically. So, of course, that had to be taken into consideration and not the people who were being uh, used and abused. So, 1908, pretty big year for Churchill. So, Asquith, Herbert Asquith, he becomes the Prime Minister because the previous Prime Minister was terminally ill. Asquith, uh, you may know as the great-grandfather of... Modern actress, Helena Bonham Carter. Fun fact. Churchill, he's 33 at this point, and he is the youngest cabinet member since, like, the 1860s. And he is appointed President of the Board of Trade. He loses his seat in Manchester, so they move him to Dundee, because it's pretty safe, they know they're gonna win. So, like, it's okay, we'll move you here. So, you know, helping you out, mate, don't worry about it. Later that year, he gets married. Huzzah! To Clementine Hosier. They get married on the 12th of September, 1908, in Westminster. And they go on this fantastic honeymoon. They're touring around Italy, they're in Baveno, they're in Venice. They even go to Czechia and stay in fucking castles, because of course they do. It's gorgeous, by the way, I, love, I fucking love a wee castle. I would though, I'd get... If I ever got married, sidebar, if I ever got married, I would love to get married just in a wee castle. Like not a big castle, not like a palace, it doesn't have to be massive, just like a wee, a wee castle. I feel like it wouldn't be too much to rent a wee castle, when you think of how much fucking weddings cost at the best of times. I feel like you'd probably save money having it in a wee castle. I just fucking love castles. Anyway, back to politics. So as the president of the Board of Trade, he's actually doing pretty well, he's pretty decent actually. He creates a standing court of arbitration to deal with industrial disputes, He works on social reform with Lloyd George. They bring forth stuff like the Mines 8 Hours Bill, which meant that mine workers could not work any more than 8 hours in a shift, which is like... produces the Trade Boards Bill, which created trade boards which could prosecute employers if they were exploiting their workforce, which then leads to the establishing of a minimum wage. He then proposes the Labour Exchanges Bill, which would provide assistance for people who were unemployed and create an insurance fund for unemployed people until they could find work. So, like, job seekers, job seekers allowance. But, of course, in order to implement social reforms and put forward the people's budget, Lloyd George and Churchill needed the fucking money. So what they wanted to do was to reduce naval spending. They didn't want an expansion of the Navy. And you've got McKenna there, who's very adamant that... War with Germany is inevitable. He's like, listen, there's going to be a war coming. We need to be prepared. I'm telling you. And they're like, no, you're wrong. You're wrong. So it's 1910 and Churchill is promoted to Home Secretary. And this is where the shit actually starts to hit the fan. And like it starts off so well. Because as Home Secretary, he has control over police and prison services. So he actually starts implementing these prison reforms. He makes distinctions between criminal prisoners and political prisoners so that prison rules are like more relaxed for political prisoners so that they're treated you know, not as badly as criminal prisoners. He also abolishes the automatic imprisonment of people who cannot pay fines. So like if you had a fine for something and you were supposed to pay it and you couldn't pay it on that day, they'd shove you in the clink. Young offenders, so under the age of 21, they wouldn't automatically be imprisoned unless it was for, like, a serious offence. So, like, if you murdered someone, yeah, you're going to go to jail. But if you, like, stole some sweets out the shop, they're not going to shove you in the big house. He relaxes the rules on solitary confinement so they're not so fucking horrific. And he brings in education and entertainment. So there are libraries and prisoners get to put on a show like four times a year, which is all to do with, you know, keeping them occupied because if they're doing other things, they're less likely to shank a bitch. You know what I mean? But like regardless of the motivations behind it, the prison reform was a good thing. It was a good idea. It was. So like at this point as well, the women's suffrage movement, it is really gaining steam. And Churchill is of the official opinion that, eh, he doesn't really mind if women have the vote as long as the male electorate agree. Which is shitty for a couple of reasons. One being that it's just a fancy way of sitting on the fence. And two, that not all men could vote. Like 40% couldn't vote. Uh, Because it was like 60% of householders. So you had to either pay an annual rental of £10 or you had land worth £10. So it was... Yeah, you had to not be poor, effectively. But anyway, the Tony Pandy riots. Now, this is mismanagement and an absolute shit show from the get-go. So these coal miners in the Rhondda Valley, they are striking because of their adverse working conditions. There is a cartel of mine owners, and they are deliberately keeping the wages low in this incredibly deprived region of Wales. And so the workers are like, Fuck this for a game of soldiers, and they strike. So the striking leads to like looting and rioting, but only damaging properties that are owned by the pet owners. So the Glamorgan chief constable, he's like, shit, and starts requesting trips. And Churchill, he, he has the trips adjacent. So he has them in Swindon, no, yeah, Swindon, and Cardiff. So that they're, you know, adjacent close by, but he doesn't want to send the troops in right away because sending a bunch of armed military into a small area in Wales does seem a little bit like overkill, wouldn't you say? And, you know, for your optics, it doesn't really look that good when you're sending the military to attack your own people. Anywho, he sends in 270 police officers who, you know, they've got their truncheons and stuff, which... (laughs) If you've ever been hit with a truncheon, they are not pleasant. It's like being hit with a teeny-weeny baseball bat. It's fucking solid. It's unpleasant. It's not just regular police officers he sends down. He also has, like, the cavalry. So, mounted on fucking horses. I don't know about you, but if I'm striking and I see a fucking horse coming towards me, no, I will not be happy. I will be terrified, and I will be swinging every which way but up. Like... No. Bye-bye. The funniest thing about the looting, though, is that, you know, they're fucking up all the shops and they're stealing shit um, with all the stuff owned by pit owners. But, like, there's a chemist or something which is owned by this, like, Welsh international, like, rugby player, or, like, ex-player. Welsh love their rugby. But, uh, like, it's not just men that are out, like, rooting, rooting, looting, rioting, picketing. There's, like, women and kids there as well. And it's kind of like this weird festival atmosphere happens because they're like parading around town in like clothes and shit. And then you've got all these like massive police force showing up. And then after the police show up, the fucking army comes in and it is an absolute fucking shit show. And Churchill's complaining that both sides, that both the miners and the fucking cartel, which is deliberately keeping the wages down, are both being unreasonable. Like, that's that's his opinion on it. And, like, the papers, like, the English papers of the time, they're complaining that Churchill should have sent in the troops quicker. And then you've got the Labour Party who's like, what the fuck were you doing? You should have supported the trade unions. You should have supported the workers. Like considering his like initial part of his career was based on that, you think he'd be more inclined, but no, no. Another thing he does as home secretary, still in the year 1910, is he writes to other home office officials, asking them, you know, to consider sterilising and preventing the marriage of people with mental illnesses and learning disabilities. And I quote, The multiplication of the feeble-minded is a very terrible danger to the race. The Siege of Sydney Street. So there were three Latvian burglars and they are holed up on a house on Sydney Street. They are surrounded by police officers and they've already managed to kill a few. So the house goes on fire and Churchill stops, prevents the fire brigade from entering the building and quelling the blaze. By the time the fire dies down, two of the men are found dead and Churchill responds with, thought it was better to let the house burn down rather than spend good British lives in rescuing those ferocious rascals. He does a couple of good things the next year though. He introduces the coal mines bill, shops bill, the National Insurance Act all of which improves the lives of, you know, the working people in Britain. And in personal news, his second child is born, Randolph. Also in 1911, there was the Liverpool General Transport Strike. So this include dockers, railway workers, sailors and like a bunch of other tradespeople. And Churchill sends in troops. We also have the National Railway Strike of 1911, which Churchill, surprisingly enough, was totally against. He also gets another promotion in 1911 so he gets appointed to First Lord of the Admiralty and he gets to live in Admiralty House which is, by the way, super fucking fancy and he gets like his own naval war staff so he starts expanding the navy, he's rebuilding it, he's boosting it up. Germany passes the 1912 naval law which increases its warship production and Churchill decides that for every battleship they build Britain's going to build two. So he's, like, travelling around, like, naval stations and docks, you know, to boost morale. But not only is he going around and talking about how great, you know, the British Navy is, he's just shit-talking Germany. Like, everywhere he goes, he's like, fuck them. So he is increasing production of submarines, seaplanes. Like, he's increasing and focusing on the British Naval Air Force. Like, all of it. But of course, expanding the Navy wasn't the only thing he was into. In 1912, he also brings forth a mental deficiency bill into the House of Commons because he was worried that the feeble-minded and the mental defectives were a danger to society and had to be stopped. Not only did he want to like, ban marriages for them or sterilise them, he wanted to introduce compulsory labour camps for mental defectives. If you're thinking this sounds a lot like eugenics, well, um, Churchill did attend the first international eugenics conference in London. Not even remotely surprised. Not even a little bit. So one of the biggest issues in British politics at that time was Irish Home Rule. So they wanted to establish a government in Dublin that would rule all of Ireland. And also Unionists were obviously very opposed to this. And the Home Rule Act, it gets it gets passed, but before anything can actually happen, a bigger issue arises. Um, the Great War, also known as World War I. As First Lord of the Admiralty, this is Churchill's fucking time to shine. He is using the Navy to transport troops to France. He's implementing blockades on German ports. He's sending submarines to the Baltic Sea to help the Russian Navy. So expanding the Navy is one thing, actual military strategy is quite another. So he's visiting Belgium, and there's a city that's under siege by the Germans. And he announces that they're going to send in British troops as reinforcements. They don't, and the city is completely crushed. And he gets absolutely slammed in the press. After this, Lloyd George, he creates this war council. So you've got Lloyd George, you've got Edward Grey, You've got Kitchener and Churchill. Kitchener and Churchill are on this war council together and Churchill fucking hates Kitchener, he really does. To the point where when Kitchener requests more like ammunition and stuff for his troops he is denied by Churchill. Like he refuses to approve it because Kitchener asked. Fuck. Imagine disliking someone so much that you are willing to let thousands of men die. Men who are serving you. Like, okay. Anywho, Churchill wants to relieve pressure on Russia by attacking Turkey. Now, does he want to help an ally or does he want to crush the remains of the Ottoman Empire as a means of British superiority? Whom's to say? The plan is to use the Navy alone and storm the beach at Gallipoli and destroy the weakened Ottoman Empire and take the Germans from the south. Unfortunately, it was less of a military sting operation and more of a massacre. So he knows he needs a fuck-ton more ships and a fuck-ton more troops and he requests them from the British War Office and they refuse. So he's like, fuck it, I'm gonna do it anyway. And all of the British warships, bar one, are all old coal-powered ones, like, okay. Luckily he does have the Anzac forces on site, so he's got the Australians and the New Zealanders. But even so, he does not have enough bodies and enough ships for this attack. Then he has to contend with the weather, which is, you know, everyone's worst enemy, and they take so long trying to reach the beach that the enemy manages to gain a fuck ton of reinforcements and it's just a massive slaughter. Losing 45,000 men. It was a cataclysmic failure which resulted in Churchill being demoted, and it almost derailed his entire political career. In 1915, he is still an MP, but he resigns from the government, and the Prime Minister, he rejects his request to become the Governor General of British East Africa. Churchill decides to take some time out by joining the army for a year. He gets his temporary promotion there, but then when the companies are like merged, he loses. This promotion and he gets, like, deranked. So he leaves the army and goes back to the House of Commons where he starts making a lot of fucking noise about the war. He wants soldiers to be given steel helmets, which, you know, fair enough. He wants a greater recognition of soldiers' bravery, also fair enough, but he also wants them to extend conscription to the Irish. Halfway through the Great War, Asquith resigns and Lloyd George succeeds him. And with this little move, Churchill gets appointed Minister of Munitions. A lot of it seems to be him dealing with munitions factories. So there's a couple of strikes and he quells one in the Clyde and then he stops another one by informing the strikers that if they continue to do so they will be conscripted into the army. Now I don't know if you know but the majority of workers of munitions factories were women. So he was telling women who did not have the right to vote, that if they don't continue working in these horrific conditions, that he was going to force them to join the army. 1918, World War I ends. Four days after the armistice, his fourth child, Marigold, is born. Also that year, Churchill votes in favor of the representation of People Act 1918, which gave all men who were over the age of 21 and all married women over the age of 30 who owned property, the right to vote. In 1919, Churchill is moved to the War Office as the Secretary of State for War and Air. The Anglo-Irish War, also known as the Irish War of Independence, it's, it's still running because the Home Rule thing never happened and Ireland is still very much under Britain's thumb. So Churchill thinks this is the best time, you know, instead of supporting, you know, a country's right to govern itself, he decides to send in the Royal Irish Constabulary. The RIC, also known as the Black and Tans, now the Black and Tans are named so because of their uniforms, so they didn't have enough uniforms to go around, so they would just mix and match, just black and tan. So they would be recognizable and there was lots of rumors about who the black and tans were they're like oh it's people from prisons and yeah yeah no these were unemployed soldiers who had returned home from world war one because giving weapons and unlimited power to people who are suffering from ptsd and unresolved trauma that's gonna work out really fucking well for you Because the black and tans, they're given fucking full reign. They get to do whatever the fuck they want most of the time. Because the black and tans were brought in to fight the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, who at that point were very much freedom fighters who were just vehemently opposed to British rule. They wanted Irish home rule. And the problem is when you've got something like the IRA is that it is a guerrilla... It's guerrilla warfare. But of course, roots run deep. So you've got ordinary civilians up to politicians who are aiding and abetting the IRA. The Black and Tans committed violent atrocities and horrific crimes throughout Ireland to civilians and Churchill never denounced them. He stood by his decision and was adamant that it was the right thing to do. But the Emerald Isle wasn't the only place Churchill was having issues. So in Mesopotamia, which is modern-day Iraq, It was under British occupation and there was what some might refer to as an uprising and without sort of any any hesitation whatsoever. Churchill requested the use of mustard gas. Um, It wasn't used by the way but he also authorized the use of sneezing gas. Not to be confused with tear gas because it's they're both um, a a lacrical gas. What the fuck is sneezing gas? Well, I'm glad you asked because I will tell you. It's a gas that not only causes excruciating pain, but causes you to vomit blood. Now, I've had so many people argue with me about this. They're like, well, he only wanted to use tear gas. Firstly, tear gas in 1920 is very different to tear gas now. It is much worse. Secondly, it was sneezing gas, which again, worse than tear gas, Not sure about you, but I feel like vomiting and choking up blood not really a good thing. And the worst thing was, this would have been used indiscriminately against Kurdish tribes. So it doesn't matter if you were involved in the uprising or not. If there were civilians, men, women, children, fuck it. He was happy for chemical weapons to be used on civilians. He said I am strongly in favour of using poison gas against uncivilised tribes. So in 1921 he gets promoted to Secretary of State for the Colonies and while he's in this position, there is an exhibition of his paintings Yes, he made art, there is an exhibition of his paintings in Paris under a false name. So things are going well for him, he's got a new job, he's got a fun hobby that I'm sure he's making money out of some way, and tragedy strikes. So his mum dies, and then a little while later, his youngest child, Marigold, she dies from septicemia. Unsurprisingly, he threw himself into his work, and first things up was negotiations with Sinn Féin for the Anglo-Irish Treaty, which I'll be honest to you, feels like less of a negotiation, because Britain was ready and was clear about it that if Ireland did not agree to the terms, if the talks fell through, that they were ready to bring in martial law. Like they had it set up and ready to go. The next thing he had to do was put people in power that he wanted in power. So in Iraq, he installed Faisal I and in Jordan, Abdullah I. He traveled to Palestine and Denied the Palestinian request to restrict Jewish migration into Palestine. 1922 was a really busy year for him because Turkish forces are threatening to occupy a neutral zone that the British army kind of protects. So Lloyd George and him, they want to use like British force as resistance, and the Conservative part of the government don't want to do that. So the Tories go, nope, and they get out, and this triggers a general election. So while the election, the run-up to the election is happening, his fifth daughter Mary is born, and that's his last kid. And then a month later, he suffers appendicitis and has to go into hospital. So while he's in hospital, you know, he loses his seat in Dundee to a prohibitionist. So he loses his seat. He's in hospital recovering from appendicitis. There's a one month baby at home, and he's just been told that he doesn't have a job anymore. This would be a prime time for a midlife crisis for Churchill, but, you know, he borrows off to the south of France, and he gets into painting, and he writes some memoirs, and he's just there for about six months, and then another general election is held. So, by the time 1924 comes around, he he tries to go in as an independent, anti-socialist candidate, and he is defeated. See, the thing is, Churchill really fucking hates the Labour Party. He hates them. And he really despises the fact that the Liberal Party is in support of Labour. Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. So he goes to a Conservative Party meeting in Liverpool, and he says that the Liberal Party has no space in British politics. And after this, he joins the Conservative Party. So when the Conservatives get into power at the next general election he is appointed Chancellor of the Exchequer, even though he has absolutely no economic or financial background. Like, no, but he's the guy in charge of the money. What? As Chancellor of the Exchequer, he brings back the gold standard which, um, which surprise surprised caused deflation and unemployment and it really fucked up the coal industry. It wasn't completely bad, he did reduce the pension age from 70 down to 65, so that was good. He did, though, for some unfathomable reason, reduce taxes on luxury items. So in 1926, Churchill is editing the British Gazette, um, which was the government's anti-strike propaganda newspaper. Because, of course, if there is a general strike going on, you want to be able to go against it. And, like, after the strike ends, he becomes like an intermediary between, like, miners and their employers, because coal miners were still being fucked over for wages. Who could have known that this thing that was an issue 16 years ago is still going to be an issue now? This does, however, lead Churchill to call for the introduction of a mandatory minimum wage. So, like, legally binding, full-on, minimum wage for workers. The next year, Churchill goes to Italy, he visits Rome, and he meets Mussolini, whom he praises. Churchill, Winston Churchill, praised Mussolini. Two years later, there's another general election, Churchill keeps his seat, but the Conservative Party, they are voted out. And Labour are in. So Churchill, he's, he's not feeling good, he's got the black dog. See, Churchill was prone to bouts of depression, um, and he referred to it as his black dog. Depression. It was depression. So in order to kind of counteract this, he would throw himself into, like, painting and writing. And because he was out of office, that's what he did again. He started writing volumes on a biography of his ancestor, John Churchill, the first Duke of Marlborough. It's around about this time he starts drinking more and he's reported to be kind of a heavy drinker. So he tries to create a conservative liberal coalition to, like, fight the Labour Party but he ends up resigning from the shadow cabinet because the Labour government want to grant dominion status to India and the Conservative Party are supporting this and he doesn't agree so he resigns because he thinks that if India has home rule then soon enough it's going to want independence just like Ireland did. So one of the discussions about India ruling itself was to provide it with universal suffrage so that everybody had the right to vote and Churchill said, While at this moment should we force upon the untutored races of India, that very system, the inconveniences of which are now felt even in the most highly developed nations, the United States, Germany, France, and in England itself. He also really hated Gandhi, <laughs> calling him a seditious Middle Temple lawyer, now posing as a fakir. So the Tories, they win the next general election. And Churchill, he gets elected, he gets a seat, but he doesn't get a ministerial position. It really gets bad to worse for Churchill here. So he tries to divide the House over this dominion status of India, and only 43 MPs back him. He then loses a fuck ton of money in the Wall Street crash. So he decides he's going to do a lecture tour of the USA, North America because he's going to try and like scramble back some money. Also, prohibition is very much still happening in the USA, so Churchill brings a doctor's note with him saying that he is medically required alcohol. So Churchill, he's in New York, he's crossing Fifth Avenue and then BLAM! He gets hit by a car and he gets uh, a pretty nasty head wound which results in neuritis. So he and Clementine, they go on a wee trip to Nassau, you know, hopefully for him to recoup, but he just is just fucking depressed. He's like, I've lost so much money, I'm injured, my job is shitty, it's not going well. So when he's feeling a wee bit better, they head back up to the States and he finishes his tour. After this, Churchill goes to Germany, he wants to visit his ancestors' battlegrounds, and so he heads to Munich, where a friend of a friend wants to introduce him to one Adolf Hitler. Hitler uh, did not come to the hotel to meet Churchill. Um, some say it's because Churchill was like, Hitler, I see the fella who doesn't like Jews? And Hitler took offence at that. And the other side say that Hitler said, Churchill isn't in office and of such is of no consequence. Either way, they didn't meet. So Churchill visits Blenheim and then a few days later, he's struck down with paratyphoid fever and he gets put in a sanatorium in Salzburg. So he thinks he's fully recovered and so he heads back to England and then he's going for a leisurely stroll one day, bam, his ulcer hemorrhages and he collapses. So he gets taken into hospital and then he has to stay in a London nursing home for a wee while. Skip forward to 1933 and Hitler is in power in Germany and Churchill, he isn't too happy about this because he knows that Germany is rebuilding their air force and, and he has some kind of idea about the Luftwaffe being created and Britain had reduced its air force and he's like, no, no, we need to get more. In 1934, Churchill goes onto the radio in a national broadcast and raises his concerns about, you know, Nazis and Nazi Germany. And around about this time, Churchill also said this. Those who have met Herr Hitler face to face have found a highly competent, cool, well-informed functionary with an agreeable manner, a disarming smile and few have been unaffected by a subtle personal magnetism. Hitler and his Nazis had surely shown their patriotic ardour and love of country. He also said that he had admiration for Hitler and the... The courage, the perseverance and the vital force which enabled him to overcome all the resistances which barred his path. And also on the whole Mussolini thing, he's like praising him because anti-socialism. But he opposes Italy's invasion of Abyssinia, as it was a primitive, uncivilised nation. Fun fact, Italy lost. So King George V, he dies, and obviously Edward is next in line to the throne. That's Edward VIII, I think. One second. Yes, Edward VIII. When in doubt, sing the monarch song from Horrible Histories. William, William, Henry, Stephen Henry, Richard, John, oi Henry, Ed, 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 Rich, and three more Henrys Join us some Edward, Edward, Richard the third Henry, Henry, Ed again Mary, one, good queen, miss Jimmy, Charles and Charles and then Jim, Will, Mary, Anna, Gloria George, 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 George Will, Victoria Edward, George, Edward, George Six, and Queen, Liz, two Completes the mix <coughs> Well, You can really hear that my voice hasn't come back Fuck Wow. So yeah, Edward VIII, he wants to marry the love of his life, divorcee Wallace Simpson. Sorry, American divorcee Wallace Simpson. And the firm and all his advisors are like, you can't marry her and be king. So he abdicates, and George VI succeeds him. Churchill pledges his allegiance to the new king, um, but he says the abdication crisis was <clears throat> Bring a draw and probably quite unnecessary. In 1937, Baldwin, the Prime Minister, he resigns and he is succeeded by Neville Chamberlain. And Churchill is really welcoming to this at first. He's like really happy he's on board. But this quickly sours when Neville implements an appeasement policy for Mussolini, which he plans to extend to Germany. This may shock you, but Churchill was very anti appeasement. He wanted to have a show of force, if nothing else. At the very least, a show of force. But he was hoping to launch an offensive. But the government was using appeasement as a way to pacify, you know, the opposing forces because they weren't ready. They had to buy time. There was no way they would have survived launching an offensive so early on. And remember, the Great War was still fresh in the minds of so many. Like, Britain still bore the scars of it. It hadn't fully healed, it hadn't regained itself from that point. They weren't ready for another grand-scale war. And by appeasement, they were hoping to either buy time or hopefully avoid getting involved in anything. Plus, Britain had other things to focus on, like undeciding the right to rule over the fate of Palestine. As we know, Churchill wasn't super into, well, any group of indigenous people laying claim to their own land. so. At the Palestine Royal Commission, in 1937, Churchill testified that Britain had the right to choose Palestine's destiny. He states... Actually, wait, I don't want to say this. No, you know what? It's, it's better I say this than not say it. I'm not going to censor it because I don't like the phrasing. But yeah, this is a quote from Churchill at this commission. I do not admit that a great wrong has been done to the Red Indians of America or the black people of Australia. I do not admit that a wrong has been done to these people by the fact that a stronger race, a higher grade race, a more worldly wise race, has come in and taken their place. What a prick. Anyway, next year, Churchill is constantly giving out about appeasement, he's warning the government it's the wrong way to go, he's not into it, it's just a bad idea. Churchill goes to Chamberlain and he tells him to threaten war if the German forces invade the Sudetenland, which is part of Czechoslovakia, which is inhabited by German-speaking peoples, or it was once inhabited by German-speaking peoples, one or the other. Instead of declaring war, Chamberlain signs the Munich Agreement, allowing Germany to enter Sudetenland, which Churchill called a total and unmitigated defeat. I know that some people believe that Britain was believing Hitler's bullshit about only wanting to unite German-speaking peoples. I think it's more of a hope for the best, expect the worst scenario, like they're hoping they don't have to go to war, but they are very much expecting to go to war. Because all of these European countries, they have alliances with one another. So Germany has the sedated land, and that's supposed to be them. That's supposed to be done. No more. You've got a wee bit of land. You're grand. And then they start encroaching on the rest of Czechoslovakia. And Britain's like, Ah, sure, you're pushing it. And when they invade Poland on the 1st of September 1939, they're like, ah, now lads, you've gone a bit far. So on the 3rd of September 1939, Britain declares war on Germany. Churchill gets reappointed to Lord of the Admiralty even after the massive fuck-up last time. But yeah, he's first Lord of the Admiralty and he's part of the War Cabinet. So, like, there's this eight-month period at the beginning of World War II where it's called the Phoney War because nothing really happens. There isn't a large military offensive. There's, like, one thing, one naval battle that happens and I think one little land assault. But... The majority of it is more like an economic warfare. They're like trying to do like naval blockades to like prevent iron getting to to Germany. So because there's this like one naval victory, there's a lot of commotion and promotion in the press regarding Churchill and he is eating it up and they're trying to avoid Germany invading Norway Uh, but they fail because the war cabinet could not agree with the French government. So because the Allies fucked up and prevented the occupation of Norway by German forces, the Norway debate happens in the House of Commons. And this is like one of the most important events ever to happen in like the history of Parliament. Uh, Probably up there with, you know, Guy Fawkes trying to blow it up. So there was a vote of no confidence in Chamberlain and his government. And Churchill, he's actually got quite good support at this time. You know, because the wee naval battle and because the press is bigging him up. And of course, his speeches. But because he is a member of this government, he has to speak. It's obligatory, he has to. So he has to somehow shit on the government that he's a part of without degrading or demeaning himself in any way. On May 10th, Belgium, Luxembourg and the Netherlands are all invaded by German forces. Because Germany is making its way towards France. Chamberlain tries to set up a coalition government but Labour refuse to work with him specifically. They will work with a Conservative but not with Chamberlain. So they've got two options. Winston Churchill or Lord Halifax. Now Lord Halifax is a member of the House of Lords so he's not really an option. So Churchill gets it. Churchill is appointed Prime Minister in October when Chamberlain resigns due to ill health. Even though Churchill was still generally unpopular within and out with his own party. So the country's at war. First things first, Churchill sets up a war cabinet, and he has members of both Labour and the Conservatives, including Arthur Greenwood, Lord Halifax, Clement Attlee, and Neville Chamberlain. As World War II rages on, like the the, the cabinet expands, you end up with a Minister for Labour and the Minister of Defence, because there was no minister in charge of prosecuting the war. And Minister of Defence was an additional duty that Churchill gave himself. It was an additional appointment. Thus making him the most powerful Prime Minister during wartime in history. So war rages on and after the defeat at Dunkirk and France is about to fall, some members of the government are hoping that maybe they can work out a peace treaty with Germany. And Churchill really didn't want public opinion to sway in the way of a peace treaty. He didn't want that. So he did what he did best. Speeches! And of course, using his gift to the gab, he wins everyone over. He orders the formation of both the Special Operations Executive, the SOE, and the Commandos. So there was a fuck ton of stuff happening during wartime, and it's not just battles and speeches. He's, like, organising the creation of, like, chemical warfare... One of which I covered in one of our previous episodes, um, The Betty Sword of Anthrax Island, which you should totally go listen to. They tried a bunch of, a bunch of shit. Um, a lot of it is what I like to call Operation What The Fuck, um, which is going to be a series on YouTube when I actually get around to filming all of the weird shit they tried to do. But a lot of these things they tried were weird. Uh, I mean, you can call it outside the box, but it's just fucking weird. And a lot of the other stuff is uh, quite unethical. See, Churchill is getting worried about the quality of the British troops because they're being defeated in France, Norway, Crete and Greece. And to add insult to injury, Japan takes Singapore and Burma. So in 1943, he really starts going to all of these international conferences with other leaders. And over the next year and a bit, he spends like two thirds of his time out of the country. Like he's not in Britain, he's elsewhere meeting up with all these other leaders, planning out shit. So while Churchill is barely in the country and, you know, the Allies are still very much in the midst of the war with Nazis, Bengal in British India is suffering one of the worst famines in its history. It's at the point where British officials are actually telegramming back requesting aid and Churchill says that relief would do no good because it was the Indians' fault for breeding like rabbits. And when they informed him of the bodies quite literally piling up in the streets, he asked, "Why isn't Gandhi dead yet?" Not only was the majority of viable food reserved for either British forces or British officials in India, when Canada and the U.S. offered to provide foodstuffs and aid, you know, for India, Churchill denied this request, and he had the foods diverted to British troops to support British troops and you might be thinking well you know that's just one of the sacrifices you make in war except the areas he was sending food to the troops didn't have a food shortage skip forward to D-Day the 6th of June 1944 and Churchill is actively involved in this he expects to go with the troops on D-Day or at least on the next day but the king basically tells him no so, the thing about DJ is it was actually supposed to happen a little bit earlier, but because of a teenage girl in County Mayo in Ireland, it didn't. And it probably saved literally thousands of lives. But that's another story for another day. Churchill had estimated a loss of 20,000 souls, but luckily, I guess, it was only 8,000. I mean, luckily it was, you know, less death, but still, massive loss of life. Not exactly anything to be happy about. But yes, D-Day and the invasion of Normandy are a success. In 1945, the Allies can feel that the end is near, Um, but Churchill, he really wants to shorten this war. He thinks he can just get it down. And in the last few months of the war, he thinks, what's a war crime amongst friends? The German city of Dresden is full of the wounded and refugees from the Eastern Front. And between the 13th and 15th of December, U.S. and British air bombers decide to attack the city, resulting in the death of up to 25,000 people, most of whom were civilians and people fleeing the war. But Dresden was not the only city to be destroyed by this bombing campaign because Hamburg and Cologne were also fucked up by the Allies. And it wasn't just cities, small towns were also part of this attack. Allied forces, were deliberately bombing small towns with little to no strategic value. Churchill wasn't shy about the fact that he had no conscientious or legal objections to bombing places once he took over as Prime Minister. And he probably didn't give one flying fuck that he killed 635,000 civilians, including 75,000 children. On the 7th of May 1945, the Allies accepted Germany's unconditional surrender. The next day is known as V.E. Day or Victory in Europe Day and he broadcasts to the nation that Germany has been defeated. Afterwards, he goes to Buckingham fucking Palace and shows up on the balcony waving along with the royal family. So the war ends, things cool down a wee bit. Labour no longer wants to be in government, you know, in a coalition. So the government dissolves and Churchill gets permission from the king to set up a new government until the next general election. So the next general election comes around and Churchill broadcasts that the Labour government, a Labour government, would have to have some form of Gestapo in order to work. Now, comparing um, members of the government to uh, your enemy's secret police regime not really a good idea but he said it anyway and surprisingly enough uh, he loses that election but he stays a member of the conservative party as the leader of the opposition. When Churchill is 77 years old the conservative party win more seats in the next general election uh, in 1951 and Churchill is the prime minister again. The king at the time George VI he's getting worried about Churchill and his declining health and how he's just not quite the man he was and he is planning to request that Churchill steps down. Unfortunately, George VI dies before he can do this. In 1953, he accepts the Order of the Garter at Queen Elizabeth II's request and he is knighted as Sir Winston Churchill on the 24th of April 1953. Months later, Churchill suffers a stroke and he is like partially paralysed down one side. They keep this whole thing a secret at the time and he goes home to rest for a couple of months and he recuperates and he gets basically back to, you know, work in order. So he has to resign in 1955. And Elizabeth II, she offers to create the title Duke of London for Churchill. Um, but then she doesn't because Randolph, his son doesn't want to inherit it. And, like, even though Churchill had, like, resigned as Prime Minister, he was still an MP, a Member of Parliament, up until 1964, when he eventually stands down. And that's him. Finally retired. And he spends most of his time either, like, in London, or tossing about the French Riviera, hobnobbing with the high society folks there. But it's not all sunshine and rosy. See, when he's in Monte Carlo, he takes a tumble and breaks his hip. He is then flown back to a London hospital because apparently, the hospitals in Monte Carlo weren't good enough. The very next year JFK President John Fitzgerald Kennedy proclaims Winston Churchill an honorary US citizen via an act of congress. Due to his ill health um, he's not able to fly to the White House to receive this honour Some reports say it's because he was just physically unwell and others, it's the return of the black dog and that he is in the midst of a great depression. In 1965, Churchill suffers a final stroke and he passes away 12 days later on the 24th of January. He has a massive state funeral that they had been planning for 12 years. They had this prepared over a decade in advance. 30th of January, he was buried in St. Martin's Church in his family plot. And so, ends the story of Sir Winston Churchill. I'm so glad you made it this far. I'm sorry that my voice is dying. If you liked my retelling of this tale, feel free to rate and review five stars on all of the things that you can rate on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, say nice things, please give five stars. Or you can just say mean things. You can say whatever you want as long as you give me five stars. You can insult me. I don't care. And now to the part where I ask you a favour. If you were listening to this before September 12th, 2022, I really need you to go on to the Irish Podcast Awards link down below and it'll be an option for the listener. Sorry, I know this is a hassle, but bear with me. So you type in who did what now and you'll see my wee logo come up and you click on me and you have to fill in some details, your email address and they will send you an email, which you then have to click on to approve the vote because it's one email per vote one vote per email address yep, that's right I would appreciate it so so much you have no idea now before I go I must do some recommendations for listening I am going to recommend the Art of History podcast with Amanda, go she's fantastic, go listen to her for watching fuck it, She-Hulk Attorney at Law it's funny. It's great. Go watch it. And for reading... Ooh, Fire and Blood by George R.R. R. Martin. I was recently inspired, not by the TV show, actually, but by, um, is it Kaylee Say? Kaylee Say? Anyway, she's fantastic on TikTok, and she talks about all of the history of Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire, and it just made me really want to read it again, so go read that. And with that, I shall say goodnight. Adios. Au revoir. Au revoir, my friends. Bye-bye. Hello, everyone. It's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.